Good morning. Can you hear me? All right. Jason, you want to be over here? Switch your room out. Good morning, and welcome to the second annual Safe Community Reentry Council Reentry Summit. I'm Heather Wigand. And I'm Jason Bell. I'm going to begin by talking a little bit about my work, because if I didn't do so, I wouldn't be me. So I'm going to talk about my work, and I'm going to share a little piece of my story, which ties into why Jason is here with me and the relationship that has developed. So my name is Heather Wigand, and I'm the director of a nationwide grassroots agency called the Life After Exoneration Program. I work with a very unique reentry population of men and women who've been wrongfully convicted and exonerated due to DNA evidence. I help to reintegrate those whose lives have been wrongfully shattered by our criminal justice system. Our work is in union with international human rights experts, and mostly we work with, um, it was modeled after a refugees and torture survivor network. But our program's backdrop is the America's criminal justice system, an increasingly expanding enterprise that is destroying individuals, families, and communities. The experiences of the exonerated, while only a small fraction of ex-prisoners, mirror those of the broader population swallowed up in our country's prisons and jails. The exonerated are primarily people of color without means, reliant on under-resourced public defenders, tried by overwhelmingly white juries, and oftentimes the victims of eyewitness misidentification. In fact, 76% are the victims of cross-racial misidentification, where the alleged perpetrator is African-American and the victim is Caucasian. But that shouldn't come as no surprise in a country where the largest percentage of prisoners are young, black, and male a whole generation being lost to institutional racism and myopia. Why have we failed to protect the innocent? Why do we continue to lock up nearly a quarter of all African-American men between the ages of 14 and 25? Why do we continue to execute prisoners when we do not know for sure that they are guilty? Why do we undermine the stability of poor communities by criminalizing behavior that naturally flourishes in impoverished communities. Because what the civil rights did, the civil rights movement did to eradicate racism has been more than undone by what the criminal justice system did to institutionalize racism. And once anyone is touched by the criminal justice system, they are marginalized, labeled, and treated as second-class citizens, and that I'm familiar with. In 1999, I would have never thought that I could be here at this podium, standing here with the opportunity to discuss with the broader San Francisco criminal justice community the errors and mistakes and injustices within our California criminal justice system, but here I am. Eight years ago, I was facing a prison sentence that would have taken pretty much the rest of my natural life. <clears throat> And I had already served a decade in and out of the prison system due to a crippling drug addiction. But what happened for me was someone believed I could do great things someday with my life, and perhaps I could better serve the community, a free person, opposed to an incarcerated person. I began a new path to show them that they were indeed correct in their assessment.
So don't think that this was a slam dunk overnight change. It was a long process, and it took a village to rehabilitate me. And some of those key people are here in the audience. Walden House is over there, and I thank you, Walden House. You saved my life. Yes, it took a village. It took in-custody treatment programming in county. It took in-custody treatment programming in state prison. And it took long-term residential local treatment programming over a three-year treatment period. It does not happen overnight. And I am still a work in progress. But what really gave me the springboard to reach my full potential in my reentry process happened one day when I received a letter that extended to me the possibility of a higher education, the possibility of a dream that I could attend a university. I filled out my FAFSA application to attend this fine university in a prison cell. That letter I received from Project Rebound, and they told me that they would help navigate me through the educational institution, which I had no idea of how to approach. And I embraced their opportunity they extended to me and from that day on, I never looked back. I do, however, work daily and push toward active reform to create a just and fair criminal justice system for all human beings. There's an African philosophy called Ubuntu, which meaning is the very essence of what it is to be human. Ubuntu means we are human because we belong. And to be an isolated human being is quite a contradiction in nature. I'd like to express my deepest gratitude to San Francisco State University, Project Rebound, the Safe Community Reentry Council, and the audience for practicing your Ubuntu and letting all of us know in San Francisco that are reentering from the prison that we belong and we are welcome in our communities. Thank you. I'd like to introduce Jason, who, um, whose organization gave me the opportunity of a lifetime. And so this is Jason Bell, Director of Project Rebound. Thank you. But, but Heather really did not do herself justice. She, she mentioned that she was a, a Rebound graduate of San Francisco State student, but what she did not mention is the, the fact that when she did graduate, she graduated with honors. She was actually a hood recipient. And this, this is not me. We have a little joke going that she is from the hood or <laughs> wears a hood. <laughs> this is like an honor. What it means is that she, when she graduated, she represented the whole Department of Behavioral and Social Sciences for, for her stellar achievement. So she, you know, I, I'm going to put that out there if she doesn't. And, and the unique thing about, about this, this dyad we have here is that before even the directorship of Rebound, I was just a prisoner with a dream. And those walls, many times I didn't think that I would be able to transcend, but Rebound gave me that, that dream and made me, I mean, made that dream possible, and I'm here today with her. And mind you, we're not here to stroke our eagles because there are hundreds of prisoners with that same desire. So it's important for us to continue to do this. You know, we're here today, but this, it doesn't stop here. We're trying to lead by example. And there's some rebound students here that are, are doing some stellar things. 4.0 students, graduate school, school of nursing, they're all doing it right here. And San Francisco State allows that to happen. Not every campus will. And, and believe me, I've tried. 
and they recognize that there's a problem in this area, but, but what it boils down to is they don't want to touch it. So we stand out, and, and it should be recognized today. The fact that uh, the University of San Francisco, the, the Criminal Justice Department, Sociology Department, Ethnic Studies, the Safe Communities Reentry Council, the even, mind you, the DA. <laughs> it's, it, <laughs> as hard as it is for me to say, you know, many years I spent, it would, I couldn't even get that out. But, you know, it's happening right here. The, the sheriff, Michael Hennessy, they're all supporting this. So, I mean, San Francisco is a unique area, and we've got to really show our appreciation. The, the mayor's office allowed, he, he donated a little, some funds to allow some students coming from, from far distances to be able to come to school. So, I mean, we're in a unique place here. We've got to continue to do this. And, and you changed a lot of people's lives. So that's kind of really what I'm here to say today. And we want to lead into, I think, Ross Mikarimi is next. Yes. We're going to introduce a real, uh, the founder of our Safe Community Reentry Council and a District 5 Board of Supervisors, San Francisco Board of Supervisors, and a wonderful supporter, wonderful man, Supervisor Ross Mikarimi. Good morning. I ran here to get here, so I'm proud that I'm here on time. Been a lot cracking in our district this morning, so it's been a long night. And part of that long night was that I was at a um, community meeting. This is not an unfamiliar uh, task and labor of love for me uh, within District 5. And, of course, one of the uh, signature parts of the discussion is, well, Supervisor Ross, they call me that because they can't pronounce my last name. Um, <clears throat> what are we going to do about the crime? What are we going to do about, you know, uh, reclaiming our streets, et cetera, et cetera? And the discussion unfolds, nothing really not typical than everything that you've heard before. I get home, <clears throat> and it's about, I don't know, 11 o'clock or so, and I turn on the TV just to kind of chill a little bit, and I see this commercial, and it just kind of blew me away a little bit, where uh, for Macy's, there's Martha Stewart uh, with Usher, uh, you, know, you know, on this commercial promoting this sort of new panache upgraded Macy's. You know, and the, th the thought just kind of jolted me was that, <clears throat> you know, when Martha Stewart got out of prison, the Correctional Institute, um, she was... Uh, re-entering back into a society where she was returning to her $40 million, 150-acre palatial estate. Uh, she had job prospects. Uh, clearly, she had job prospects. And she even had a reality TV show waiting for her. And that puts things in perspective when I think about every single day in the United States when uh, anywhere between two to 300 women and over 1,500 to 2,000 men are released out of prison every single day in the United States about what their prospects are. We know that the uh, tremendous hurdles that uh, our people face when they are leaving the system 
expected to re-enter back into society, but yet we also know the impediments to their abilities to try to procure a job, to get the kind of training and skills and services, whether it be uh, substance abuse, mental health, whether it be the kind of job prospects that one would expect. And we also know what the results of those attempts and those endeavors are. And quite frankly, this country has failed our people. And in California, which has four times the amount of any inmate population of upwards of about 160,000 on average, and when we see 120,000 released uh, into, back into society, and a number of them uh, are certainly coming back to the communities in which they had some relationship and connection to, and San Francisco is very much part of this landscape, where every single day we are host to between 1,600 to 2,000 men and women parolees, certainly thousands and thousands of more in the city and county uh, who have been on probation, adults and juveniles. And the question's begged is, what is the state of California, who is considered to be probably the most forward-thinking state in the United States, doing for this inmate population so that they are able to integrate back into society in the way that one would hopefully expect. Well, in the last 10 years, any kind of services that have been offered, whether it is GED training or opportunities to look forward to college, job skill training, any kind of substance abuse training, any kind of mental health counseling, really any kind of services that would be what you would think common sense have decreased by nearly 45% therefore deflecting the responsibility that much more in municipalities in order to anticipate the tsunami of people who are desperately trying to do the right thing, who are desperately trying to re-enter back into society, but basically when they are told to leave the system, they're given the proverbial bus ticket and some pocket change to go back, then they arrive in the city and we are bewildered as to why our crime rates are so high. Let's line it up. The very fact is, is that if a progressive state like California, and even more so a benchmark city like San Francisco, really means to earn its distinction of being what it is nationally in the eyes of the rest of the country, of being forward-thinking, then let's answer the questions. The fact is we can't wait for the feds in the state to get its act together, although we have to try because they've got the resources, they've got the dollars. But really, and critically speaking, if it wasn't for the great work of Jeff Adachi and Michael Hennessy, our sheriff, and Kamala Harris, our district attorney, and uh, members of the Board of Supervisors that have joined me, and a whole network of nonprofits and CBOs that have advanced these two reentry consuls that have culminated in this kind of summit, then our antidote to this very arching which I don't think is an insurmountable problem, uh, wouldn't have really materialized. But at least San Francisco is showing the way on what we can do in order to put our people back to work and try to get them the services that they desperately need and trying to answer the question about well, why is recidivism in San Francisco as high as the national average and the state average well, now we're trying to show with tangible results exactly what our strategies are. Now, not that this stuff hasn't existed before, but it wasn't well coordinated, to say the least. 
And while I think local government was always expecting state government or the Fed to deliver the answers, I think it was becoming increasingly clear that those answers were coming up thin. So that when a supervisor like myself is at these late night meetings and trying to have a meaningful discussion to people is, well, why can't you just all, you know, lock them up and put them away? You know, what's going on here? My response is simple. In one respect, let's have a more in-depth discussion about the poverty that exists in San Francisco and in cities that like to believe that they are very forward-thinking. Let's look at the economic connection and the fact that we're struggling just to understand the hemorrhaging of black flight uh, within San Francisco and that a percentage of a community within the African-American community in a city like San Francisco is also a percentage that is either trying to duck the bullets or at least have been part of the system where they feel that they can no longer make San Francisco their home anymore because it's just become so cost prohibitive. We're not going to have the state and the feds answer that question for us. It's going to take a sophisticated response that's street smart. And that's why exactly we've amalgamated together in the kind of forces that we have so that it obligates the city government and it obligates you together as friends to demand the kind of response that's critical. This is why I believe that we should be centralizing our workforce programs and holding both city agencies and its CBOs accountable. This is why that it's not acceptable that when we're doling out millions of dollars per year through the general fund of the budgetary process, the Board of Supervisors, for juvenile workforce programs, and that we're only seeing a few hundred go to work every year, then it's incumbent upon us to ask the question, why can't we do better and where the hell is this money going? I'm here with great optimism, which is why I helped start the reentry console. I'm here to believe that whatever I think the thin response is by the state in not being able to provide the services for those who are formerly incarcerated that are coming out of the system, where only one out of ten parolees only get the services, where only six percent of the aggregate population in California only get employment services, where half are illiterate, where actually over 50 percent are known to either have some kind of substance abuse problem, where 30 percent have some mental health issues, and yet we give them that bus ticket. Well, you know what? You come to San Francisco, we're here with open arms, and that's exactly what we're trying to create, is a system that is understanding of a reality that is not dismissive, that is one that is treated and treating our people with respect, and one that is giving people the absolute strategies, tools, know-how, and support that allows people to reenter back into society with the very hope that they will be able to make a life for themselves, empowering themselves, their families, and the communities in which they live. And concurrently, that helps serve as our antidote to the violence that I believe occurs in San Francisco, and concurrently is also our answer for trying to help eradicate the poverty that few want to talk about in the city. Thank you. I have the distinct pleasure, okay, it's still a distinct pleasure, it's even more so, but they're going to have to debate it. Um, I wasn't sure if I was introducing our illustrious public defender or illustrious district attorney, um, somebody who I actually had worked for 
um, and I worked for the office for about nine years, who is just absolutely making uh, inroads around the nation by the innovation and programs that she's setting forth as a prosecutor, as the top cop, but somebody who's blazing a path and showing other prosecutors, top cops around the state and around the country, what it means not just to be hard on crime, but what it means is to be compassionate to dealing with those who are looking to better their lives and looking for the kind of alternatives other than just locking them up. Our district attorney, Kamala Harris, is exhibit A in showing the right way in where this city, this state, and this country has to go. Please welcome Kamala Harris. Well, I stand here very proudly with the leadership that we have in San Francisco. And um, I think we all should just take a moment to really recognize what has been said about how unique we are as a city. When you have aligned, you know, they say the stars are aligned. When you have aligned the stars like public defender Jeff Adachi, Ross Mercurimi, Mike Hennessy, um, we know that we are in a special place and that these are special times. And we should feel a sense of hope and um, a sense of inspiration around the leadership that we have in this city. So I stand here proudly with our partners uh, in a collaborative effort to do what we should be doing to really deal with how we are going to achieve safe communities. So I am the chief law enforcement officer for a major city in this country. And when I stand before my colleagues, the elected DAs in the California DAs Association, where I've now been elected to serve on the board of directors, when I stand in a room with my colleagues at the National District Attorneys Association, where I've been elected to be the vice president, I talk with them about why it is we need to stop having this tired old conversation that only asks two questions. Those questions being, well, are you soft on crime or are you tough on crime? And I talk with them about why we need to instead ask one question, which is, are we being smart on crime? And in that regard, let us talk about the failures, as has been mentioned, of our criminal justice system. Let's look at California as an example where on an annual basis we release 120,000 prisoners because they have served their time. This is not about saying there should be longer sentences. They have served their time. And within three years of the release of those 120,000 prisoners, within three years of their release, 70% recidivate. They reoffend. Is that not a failure of our system? And so when I talk with my colleagues, when I talk with people in the business community, when I go to the Chamber of Commerce, when I go to Republicans, I talk about how we are going to be smart to create and in creating safe communities and safe streets. And in that context, I talk about reentry. I talk about the program that we've created out of my office back on track under the auspices of the San Francisco Reentry Council, which has been working collaboratively side by side with the Safe Communities Reentry Council. And how we, through the back on track program, under the guidance of Latifa Simon, who many of you know, who started Center for Young Women's Development and has been a community activist and organizer for a long time, how we have, with those 18 through 24 year old former drug offenders, reduced their recidivism from 50% to less than 10% here in San Francisco. 
I talk with them, these prosecutors, these police officers, about how that is a smart program for, among everybody else, the victims of crime. Do we not want to prevent victimization in the future? Is that not what law enforcement is about? You know, nationally, I talk with them about the fact that the FBI will share with you and tell you that, on average, in this country, only 20% of serious and violent crime results in an arrest. So if we as law enforcement have the responsibility and have sworn and taken an oath to have as our primary concern safe communities, if I only talk with you about keeping you safe by saying I'm going to look for the longest prison sentences possible, I am necessarily falling short of my responsibility to think about how to keep you safe because the vast majority of those cases don't even hit my desk. So it is therefore a legitimate, if not necessary, responsibility for law enforcement to engage itself in a plan for how to keep communities safe, not only by reacting to crime when it happens, not only by prosecuting serious and violent crime when it comes to us, but also by coming up with meaningful strategies for preventing crime in the first place. So part of why, and in fact one of the main reasons why, we in the San Francisco DA's office created the first reentry unit of a DA's office in this country is because we are committed to public safety. And I would suggest to you, everyone in this room, that we define our purpose among the many reasons that we're motivated to think about where are these jobs going to come from, how will they be able to attain or hold on to those jobs without skills. When we think about former offenders in terms of their needs for support around parenting their children, when we think about former offenders in terms of their need to have meaningful housing and a living wage, when we talk about former offenders and think about seeing them not through a plate glass window but through the prism, given the multifaceted lives we all have, when we talk about our commitment to doing all of that for former offenders, please also talk about the fact that this is just simply the smart way to create safe streets. Because that resonates. And I'm going to tell you, there are a whole lot of people out there that don't necessarily care about the people you and I care about. But they do care about safe streets. So let's always remember in our conversation to do that thing about talking about reentry as just simply the policy that is about being smart on crime. I thank you all for the work that everyone in this room is doing. I thank you, Jeff Adachi, Ross Mercurimi, Mike Hennessy, for your leadership. And we should all feel very excited. Back on Track has been chosen now as, an, as a model for DA's offices around the country. The work that we're doing collaboratively around our reentry councils is also a model for this country. And once again, we in San Francisco are giving leadership to one of the biggest challenges facing not only our city, but our country. And I thank you all for your commitment. Thank you. And it's now my pleasure to introduce 
our great public defender, who I've known for many years because we were in law school together. Well, actually, he was a couple years older than me. But, um, <laughs> but I, I, I know Jeff and have known him for a long time, long before we, we, um, we are, came to where we are now. And I, through that long time of knowing him, have known him always from the first time I met him to be absolutely and deeply committed to looking out for people who need support and help. He was a tutor in a program, the LEOP program, where it was a program, Legal Educational Opportunity for Law Students of Color. I was the president of the Black Law Student Association, and Jeff was always there figuring out who he could support and help in terms of tutorials for, for young law students of color and disadvantaged law students. Through his career, he has shown himself to be a fighter and to be passionate, to be authentic and honest in his true commitment to making sure that those who need a voice have a voice, those who don't have the power have the support, have the articulation around their needs in a way that he has uplifted many people. So it's very, I'm very proud to introduce the San Francisco public defender and really a leader around what can be done out of a public defender's office, Jeff Adachi. Thank you very much, District Attorney Harris, and for your courage and, and for your vision. Wow. This is beautiful to see not only all of you here, but what you represent. If you look across this room and you see the diversity of experience, of culture, of all the different things that you bring, it only reemphasizes the realization that, as Malcolm X said, self-determination is within our reach. And that's probably the biggest difference this year from last year. This is our second summit. In our first summit, we talked about the challenges. We talked about the problems. We pointed a lot of fingers. But we came to realize something, that if we are truly serious about making change, we are the ones that at least have to lead that movement. And that's why you are all here. And it begs the question, why are we here? Are we here to try to provide a service? Are we here to espouse our views? Are we here to condemn this group or that group for why things aren't happening? And when it really comes down to it, we are here to restore humanity to the criminal justice, or as we say, injustice system. That's why we're here. And that's the burden that each of us should feel as we sit here today. You know, I was in my office uh, about 10 days ago at our juvenile division, at the public defender's office, and uh, I met a young man who had just been released from the California Youth Authority. You've all heard the stories about the hellhole of the California Youth Authority. In San Francisco, we've had a moratorium for a number of years. But this young man had been sentenced to the California Youth Authority. He had served seven years there. Seven years. You've heard the horrendous stories of how young people are deprived of education, of food, the basic needs that any young person has have been denied. 
despite spending over 200000 a year now on youth. And upon his release, the only thing that he received was housing. No money, no plan, no mentoring other than the caseworker that was assigned to him uh, in the foster home where he's staying. And he was basically left on his own. And when I saw him at the office and he introduced himself and told me where he had come from, I was surprised because he looked like a young man with a tremendous amount of hope and promise, so much to offer, so articulate. And I saw who was standing next to him, and it made me happy to see that Terry Anders, who is a member of the Safe Community Ranchery Council, was with him. Now, Terry runs a program here in San Francisco where he helps individuals who are released from prison to find jobs in the trades. Terry himself, at one point in his life, faced decades in prisons. And as a result of a break that he got, he turned that around and now has leveraged that to be a mentor, a leader for people who are recently released from prison. And Terry was with this young man. I also saw Jack Jackwa, you may know from the Omega Boys Club. He was standing on the other side of this young man. And Jack had known this young man for many years and was there to support him. Patty Lee, from my office, the manager of our juvenile division, was also there. And I'm not saying that these things alone will make a difference, but this is what we've got to try and do. I'd like to introduce a young man who is here today. We invited him to the summit. His name is Jamar Milton, and I hope he doesn't mind if I ask him to stand. And I asked Jamar what the most important thing was for him in coming out. And he said, people to talk to, people telling me that they care about my future and what happens to me. That's the most important thing. It's true he didn't even have money to get an identification. He didn't even have money to get a work permit. But these are things that can be done. I think the thing that's often overlooked is that we need to restore humanity and simply be a friend to a person who is reaching out for help and need support. And going beyond that, the Safe Communities Reentry Council, along with the DA's Reentry Council, has set up for an ambitious, ambitious year. We're going to be talking about what we've done this year, as well as what our hopes are for the future and how we can continue to join together and work in a collaborative fashion because the Safe Communities Reentry Council is a collaborative. You're going to hear about programs like the Sheriff's no Violence Alliance program, which was developed in collaboration with the Safe Communities Reentry Council that provides education, employment, and housing, real services to people who are released from county jail and now from prisons. You're going to hear about the incredible work that is being done uh, by different groups in the community 
who are dedicated, have been dedicated for many years uh, to the work of reentry. Uh, Phil Torta is here, who is the regional director for the California Department of Corrections. And he is here because he is committed to reentry and committed to finding new strategies to work with communities like San Francisco who want to invest in reentry as a part of, of uh, our, way of doing, our way of doing business. I wanted to, to mention uh, that we are today uh, releasing a uh, resource guide. This is a resource guide. It's called Getting Out and Staying Out, a guide to San Francisco resources for people leaving jails and prisons. Uh, this is a, a joint uh, production between the district attorney's office uh, and our office, as well as many others who have worked uh, very hard on this uh, directory. Uh, this is a complete directory, step-by-step -step services, uh, which uh, you know is, is written for a person who is recently recently re released from prison. And um, you know we we're going to be distributing these uh, to prisons throughout uh, uh, the Bay Area as as well as in the San Francisco. Uh, county jails. We're going to be talking about violence prevention. And, you know, you hear so much about the need to reduce violence. And the strategies that we're going to be talking about today really are grounded in reducing violence through providing opportunities for people who are recently uh, released from prison and in that way reducing uh, violence or avoiding it altogether. We also have a uh, wonderful speakers who are go going to be greeting you this morning. The, the mayor of San Francisco, uh, Mayor Gavin Newsom, is here. Uh, Supervisor Sophie Maxwell uh, is is also here and, and uh, will be called on to, to give some remarks. Our keynote speaker, Luis Rodriguez, uh, is here. He, he uh, came up and made time in his schedule all the way from Los Angeles. Uh, he is a revolutionary writer and somebody who has been engaged and involved in the work of reentry for years and years and years. And you may know him as an author, you may know him as an activist, you may know him as an artist, but he will be here today uh, to, to talk about um, what strategies we can engage in uh, together. So now uh, I will uh, ask our, our panelists uh, to, to uh, come to the stage um, for our, our first panel. And our first panel is a plenary panel of criminal uh, Justice uh, uh, Partners. Um, Sheriff uh, Michael Hennessy. <laughs> Supervisor Ross Mirkarimi. Our new Deputy Chief of Probation, Patrick Boyd. Philip Torta, who is the West Bay District Administrator of Parole for the California Department of Corrections. We also have the Chief Deputy Secretary, Maricela Montes, of Adult Programs of the California Department of Corrections. Thank you for making time to be here. And Daniel Zarita, who is the Supervisor of the U.S. Federal Probation. Now, the purpose of this panel is to really look to criminal justice policymakers and not only uh, to have them present um, what they are doing around reentry, but also to give you the opportunity to ask questions. Now, we have two other panels that are happening in the afternoon at home 
in the communities, decreasing the, the disproportionate impacts of violence and incarceration, and inside out, increasing access to appropriate services and resources uh, later this afternoon. And I do want to emphasize that on uh, each of these panels, we also have formerly incarcerated individuals and people who um, have recently been released to talk about what their needs are because their voice um, is probably the most important uh, to be heard here. And so now um, it gives me great pleasure to uh, introduce our uh, MC uh, for and, and mistress of ceremonies for the event today. Uh, her name is Joanne Marr. She is an award-winning journalist and documentary producer who has worked in public radio for many years since the mid-1980s. Her feature reports and documentaries have been broadcast on National Public Radio, The Voice of America, Justice Talking, Living on Earth, The Charles Osgood File, Pacifica Radio, Soundprint, the BBC, and the AARP Primetime Series. Several of her programs have won national broadcast awards, too many to name here. Currently, uh, Joanne is a media fellow with the Open Society Institute and is working on a documentary on the California prison crisis. And if you look in your packet, uh, there is a, a, radio, a CD of a radio program that Joanne uh, did on, um, on the prison crisis here in California. Her involvement with prison started in law school at Syracuse University when she took part in the school's prisoner rights clinics for two years. At graduation, she worked for eight years as a public interest attorney representing indigent clients. As part of her work in media, Joanne has been a news reporter and anchor at KPFA, a community radio station in Berkeley, California. She also received a special commendation from the Berkeley Unified School District in 1998 for her school broadcasts and reports. And she's also on staff at KALW, a public radio station in San Francisco. So with that, uh, Joanne, thank you very much and uh, take it away. Good morning, everybody. I'll be moderating the morning and afternoon panel discussions on the subject of reentry, working together to support San Franciscans after incarceration. And we're starting the morning session with this plenary panel of distinguished criminal justice partners. But before we get to our panel discussion, I'd like to introduce San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom, who's uh, here with opening remarks, and he'll be uh, talking about the importance of reentry programs, and perhaps he could address himself to uh, initiatives that San Francisco could be spearheading to uh, work towards a comprehensive uh, reentry support system for ex-offenders uh, with the goal of reducing violence and incarceration. San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much for being here. I'll, I'll try to be brief because uh, I, I know the panel wants to get going, and District Attorney and I, um, we're both uh, on another panel in just a moment on the other side of town. So I just wanted to first say, first and foremost, thank you, Jeff Adachi, uh, for organizing this event again. I uh, thank you for your leadership, for your commitment, uh, for your advocacy, and most importantly, for your leadership to move away, as you said, Jeff, from who's to blame to what to do. And this is so fundamental in this discussion. It's no longer good enough to state the obvious. Uh, we know the statistics. You have lived as part of those statistics. We know the problem. Now what are we going to do differently in order to produce a different result? All of us agree that if we continue to do what we've done, we'll get what we've got. We recognize that good enough 
never is as well. And while we are making tremendous progress with our back on track program, with our clean, straight, clean slate program, uh, with the service leagues, good work, and Goodwill Industries, good work, uh, and senior ex-offender programs, and Project Rebound and the like, that that's not good enough. We've got to do better. We've got to get to the next level. I say this uh, because we live it in so many other ways uh, at City Hall, because at the end of the day, at a local level, uh, that's where the burden lies. Now, you can intellectualize it at the federal level. You can intellectualize it at the state level. But when it comes to the topic of reentry, when it comes to the topic of the criminal justice system, it's manifested in our neighborhoods, in our diverse communities, and that is very real and raw, and we need to reconcile that. So I'm very honored that all of you are here. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that many of you are here that have struggled to get here. Uh, and for those of you uh, that have uh, gotten yourself up, made mistakes, we all do, learn from those mistakes and have the courage now to step up and step in to be here, uh, I think you more than anyone else deserve the recognition uh, because you're living, breathing examples of what we're fighting for and what this is all about. I've always believed everybody has the capacity to flow with the forces of life to be fully expressive. And I've always believed that your past does not equal your future. And I say that more often to people that are successful that think that's automatic in the future as much as I do to people that have made mistakes in the past that can reconcile those mistakes and move on. And I also believe in the context of what Jeff was saying is he can quote Malcolm X, I'll quote Dr. King, that we're all bound together by a web of mutuality, that we're all in this together. And he took that right from the Bible that says we're many parts but one body. And when one part suffers, we all suffer. And we recognize our fate today in this effort, in this collaborative, in this coordinated approach. But let us not forget that it's not just faith, it's works. And if, for us to manifest change, we've got to take action. We need to do it boldly, in a coordinated way, and we need to have the courage to change. And so it's in that spirit, again, I thank you all for being here. I look forward uh, to the discussions. You've got some enlightened leadership here with Supervisor Mercurimi, uh, our great sheriff. Uh, got other great representatives here and our district attorney. Uh, it doesn't get much better, folks, than this. Uh, we're the envy for other cities across the country. Uh, so we have an obligation to become the example of solutions. Uh, and I know the answers are out there. We just have to have the courage to find them and the courage to adopt new solutions. So I congratulate all of you, welcome all of you, and look forward to a successful second annual summit. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you, Mayor Newsom. I'd like to introduce San Francisco uh, Supervisor Sophie Maxwell, who is also here today, and invite her to come up to the podium to make some opening remarks. I was not scheduled to speak, but I showed up because I serve and I live in a community that's affected by a failed system. I see it every day. I hear it every day at night. And so I wanted to be here. I wanted to be here among my colleagues and among the people in our city who care so much, and that's all of you. We are so fortunate to have you, and we're so fortunate to have the humanness 
and in our city attorney, our district attorney, our public defender, our sheriff, our mayor, my colleague, Rosemary Karimi, and many of us who are on the Board of Supervisors. So I'm just here to support and to listen and, again, to thank you all for all that you do every day. Thank you. And thank you for all being here today. Can you hear me? Okay, great. We're going to be starting this morning's session with a plenary panel of distinguished criminal justice partners. They are representatives from federal, state, and local agencies. They're all coming together to discuss ways of how we can work together to create a comprehensive reentry system in San Francisco with the aim of assisting ex-offenders in starting a new life, helping them to reintegrate back into the community, and to avoid returning to prison. California has one of the highest rates of recidivism in the nation, and reentry programs may be one of the keys to reducing recidivism. I'd like to have uh, our panelists uh, talk about how each of your agencies are currently involved in uh, reentry efforts and programs, and perhaps we could start with Jeff Adachi, San Francisco Public Defender. Thank you. Well, I know one of the frustrations that I felt, I've been a public defender for, for 20 years, is that, you know, once you would provide representation for an individual, and when that representation was concluded, one of the frustrations that I always felt is we needed to do more, and that even freeing a person from a criminal case was no guarantee that they were going to succeed, particularly if a person was homeless, if a person didn't have the resources they need, they didn't have the family support. And so for this reason, you know, we began looking at not so much reentry, but what the needs were of our clients. We represent about 25,000 people a year who are charged with criminal offenses in, in San Francisco. One of the, the greatest needs that we saw uh, is the fact that a person was saddled with a criminal conviction. And so in 1998, uh, we started a program called Clean Slate, which would help clear a person's record. And a lot of folks don't even realize that if you're convicted of a criminal offense, a felony or a misdemeanor, you can have your record cleared. You have a right to that if you can show that you've rehabilitated yourself. And so we began uh, doing public outreach on this issue so people knew about it and offering the service. I have to say that prior to 1998, we were clearing about 80 records a year. And you literally had to chase down your public defender three years after you were convicted, find them, and then have them file the petition in court. What we realized is a lot of people didn't want to come down to the Hall of Justice to get their record expunged. They had bad memories there. And so we wanted to go out to the community and offer the service. So we opened offices and over a four-year period in, in Baby Hunters Point, in the Western Edition, in Visitation Valley, and now the Mission and our office in South of Market. We also have a drop-in program so people can simply drop in and don't have to make uh, an appointment. We went from clearing 80 records a year to last year 2,000 records in just one year. And what this does is it not only restores a person's rights and makes it possible for them to get employment and educational loan because there are a number of, of disabilities, the disadvantages with, come with a conviction, but it also helps restore dignity. And if you can tell a person in the event that they are convicted 
that you can get it taken off your record, whether it's a misdemeanor offense. And we probably clear about 100 percent of the misdemeanor petitions that we file, maybe 95 percent. The felonies, probably about 70 percent. And also we even file certificates of rehabilitation with the governor. And so this is a process that we want to let people know about that they can take advantage of. Now, is there a lot more work that needs to be done? Absolutely. Is there discrimination that still occurs as a result of employment? Absolutely. And these are things that we need to change legislatively. The other thing I just wanted to briefly mention is that in our juvenile unit, one thing that we've done as well is we now have social workers, both in the juvenile unit and our adult unit. And that's something that's new to public defender offices because what we can begin doing is immediately providing services. We have one social worker who works specifically with girls, young girls in the juvenile justice system. So when we have a girl that comes in who needs services, we can immediately put them in contact with service providers. Now, I don't believe that social work should be driven by, you know, a person's needs alone. You can't look at a person and say, oh, you need this, therefore plead guilty so you'll get the service. And that's one of the things that we have to be very wary of. At the same time, if we have somebody who needs a service, there's no reason why we can't provide that. And so these are just a few of the innovations that we've used. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing about other work that's being done, both by our fellow panelists as well as people in the audience. Thank you, Jeff. Our next speaker is Daniel Zarita. He's supervisor with the U.S. Federal Probation Department. Good morning. Thank you, everybody, for showing up. And thank you for permitting me to sit on this panel. This is the second annual summit, but it's the first time any federal representative has been here. And I think that has to do with sitting on the State Communities Reentry Council. I have a selfish interest because I'm also a San Francisco resident, but I'm also a federal probation officer. In terms of numbers, the Northern District of California for the United States Courts covers all the way from Monterey all the way up to the Oregon border. And you guys probably think, wow, you must have a tremendous amount of offenders under federal supervision. Well, we have a fair amount, and 14% of those actually are San Francisco residents. So we do have a good number of federal offenders which we supervise through our agency. Some of the things that are nuts and bolts in terms of how we work with offenders and reentry services is we are very proactive in working with where we get our offenders. We have offenders that do not come from county probation, jails, or state prisons. We get our offenders that we work with from the Bureau of Prisons. If any of you have been over to Dublin, you know there's a federal correctional institute in Dublin. That's the only one that is within our district. But we have individuals that are released from Oklahoma, FCI Sheridan in Oregon, Los Angeles. So we have numerous people that serve their sentences at different places and then come to where they have family and a network of support. It's our responsibility as federal probation officers to conduct visits at residences anywhere from a year to two years in advance of their release to meet the family members, go to the residences, see the suitability of the support network, and the layout of the residence. So we do quite a bit even before an offender is released. Seventy-eight percent of the individuals nationwide released from the Bureau of Prisons are then placed in our residential reentry centers known as halfway houses. 
an officer is obliged within 10 days of a four-month commitment at a halfway house to meet with the case manager, the offender, and start that reentry process all the way from establishing to make sure that the home inspection that was done up to a year in advance is still suitable, what are they doing for employment, uh, getting, making sure that they're in treatment services. When an offender then fulfills their time of custody, then they actually come under federal supervision. And the average uh, time on supervision is about three years. They are to report to their officer within 72 hours. And at that time, we do what are called piggyback services. If an offender while in the halfway house was receiving drug or mental health treatment services through their contracted provider, we will also use the same contracted provider so that there's not a disconnect of offenders then saying, okay, I established a rapport with my therapist in getting mental health treatment services or individualized drug counseling, and now you're telling me to go to a different treatment provider. So we're also very conscious that different federal <coughs> levels in working with released offenders in terms of is there a continuum of services so that there's not that break in treatment that has been provided. Um, within our agency, we're also just started, and part of my selfish interest for getting involved in the reentry council was we have a strong workforce initiative right now that we have put into place. We are trying to do everything we can to form partnerships with one stops, um, to reach out and meet other community-based and faith-based organizations because we realize that our population is in fact releasing to, the, to this city and San Francisco has these different reentry services that we want to be connected with and we want to have partnerships because we're all stakeholders in the same ultimate goal and that is to break the cycle of recriminality and recidivism. I think that's about all I have to say for now. Thank you, Daniel. Our next panelist is Patrick J. Boyd. He is the Chief Deputy with the San Francisco Adult Probation Department. Thank you. Uh, good morning and welcome to all of you. Thank you for being here. I'm uh, relatively new in the San Francisco Pro Adult Probation Department. I've been here about a month. I'm learning the city and the department. Uh, although I've spent my entire adult life in corrections and reentry programs. Um, the San Francisco Adult Probation Department is responsible for the supervision of approximately 8,000 probationers. Uh, about 7,000 of those are felony probationers, and about 1,000 are misdemeanant probationers, uh, for specifically with domestic violence or DUI cases. The vast majority of these 8,000 probation have been in custody, um, some for short periods of time, some for extensive periods of time. Uh, some of them are also concurrently on state or federal parole, and many are also on probation in other counties, uh, primarily in the Bay Area. Um, our, our business in probation is reentry. That, that's what it's about for us. 
the services we provide are supervision, monitoring, and enforcement. We collaborate with numerous public and nonprofit community organizations for a wide range of services for the probationers. Um, the men and women receive services including substance abuse treatment, housing, employment training, employment placement services, uh, homeless support, and violence prevention programs. In the past year, the San Francisco Adult Probation Department has been undergoing a major transformation. Uh, with the support of Mayor Newsom, the judges, and the Board of Supervisors, uh, Jeannie Woodford was brought in as the new Chief of Adult Probation approximately a year ago, and she has implemented a transformation to refocus the resources of the department on community supervision, to implement assessment systems to determine the needs of the men and women on probation, and to establish specialized caseloads. We've established specialized caseloads including domestic violence, sex offenders, uh, 18 to 25 year old young adults, homeless, and mentally ill. So we're making major changes in terms of delivery of services from an office-oriented operation to a focus on getting out into the community, providing more direct supervision and support for the probationers, and ensuring a much higher level of collaboration with our community partners. Thank you. Our next speaker is Ross Mirkarimi with the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. It's an honor and privilege to be here before you. I <clears throat> wanted to sort of answer this question the best way that I know, and that is when I came into an elected office in 2005, I was astounded that the discussion of reentry was not as mainstream as I thought it needed to be. And yet, people were extremely frustrated um, and agitating over the high crime rates, the violence, and yet nowhere in the, I think, forefront was there ever, I think, the kind of discussion afforded to the question of reentry. So, in terms of what I've done as a member of the legislative branch of our government and what we're doing, was that I went to Jeff Adachi, our public defender, to say it's time we start a reentry console and it's time that we gather the talent, the skills, and the experience that's congregated in this room so that we can begin to focus the political will and the determination to finally shed new light on old questions. And that hadn't been happening to the degree that it needed. And by the fact that uh, us within the legislative branch of government, in concert with the public defender, also trying to talk and, uh, I think, communicating with the mayor's office and the district attorney, who's also leading up a reentry uh, efforts, finally put, I think, the obligation, as I spoke to earlier in my opening remarks, 
on the city government to recognize what I think has been long neglected. That's not to dismiss the incredible work that many of you have been doing through the CBO network, but I feel it's been getting very insufficient support from the city government, and I don't mean just fiscally, I mean politically speaking. And, and at very minimum, when I say about insufficient support, I mean at the very minimum using the pulpit. I mean speaking to the question that I think that when we look at the big slice as to why violent crime continues and why that there's that interconnection of those who used to serve or had served in the system and are recidivating again, then why weren't we lasering in on that one slice as to what our city government can do better to impress and compel our state and federal representatives and those who work with us in order to help bolster our ability to answer these questions. So that, that is why we formed the Reentry Council. It was about politics. It was about the ability to exert some local muscle so that we could go to Sacramento, which we had several times, in order to compete for grants which the city and county had not done before. And the first time, and let me tell you, we were high-fiving each other when we received $500,000 grant in order to give us that empowerment so that we can then disseminate the money back to you all because this is what is a tried and true strategy. What I've noticed in what I think our role on the Board of Supervisors, with the assistance of my colleague Supervisor Maxwell and others, is that especially when it comes down to budget time, that it's not a footnote of discussion anymore about what we should be doing in order to support the fine work you all are doing and the innovation that's coming before us that we should, I think, invest in. It's now becoming part of the primary discussion that should be incorporated in the mayor's budget. Because when the mayor's budget, who gets the first whack at advancing it to the Board of Supervisors, is inclusive or not of the kind of programs that we, sh that we would like to see, then it's up to us in the Board of Supervisors then to help modify and add back. In the last two years, and I have to say this with a certain distinction of pride, in the last two years, we've invested more for add back programs towards the question and towards the implementation of reentry than has ever been done in the history or recent history in the city and county of San Francisco. This is why back on track is moving so well. This is why that our great sheriff here through the NOVA program and then our great public defender is able to aim with great precision and efficacy because we're trying to put the money into those programs. And yet, it's still not enough because ultimately speaking, while in my opinion that there's this kind of decentralized effort I'm really into centralization. I really am. And as I had mentioned earlier, it's astounding and I think shameful that for all the money that the city government has been investing, on top of which the state and federal grants we get to try to put our people to work, to try to put those who are formerly incarcerated to work, getting the job skills training, getting immigrants the opportunities, getting the people who just are not able to I think demonstrate the wherewithal or the inspiration or whatever holds them back to get them the kind of job so that they can have a livelihood in San Francisco. 
then I also feel that the centralization of workforce speaks to, I think, the question of centralization of reentry programs. If I had a dream, quite frankly, I would like this discussion to evolve to the point, and I mentioned this last year, and I believe we're on this assembly line of thinking, that one day in San Francisco, we should create a department of reentry. And that, by creating a department of reentry, then continues to house everybody on one roof in a fishbowl, but making that fishbowl transparent so that you know where the dollars are going, you know exactly how we are aiming our resources as we should and marshalling the kind of support so it doesn't seem so elusive to all, you, all of you as to why we're not doing better. Thank you. Michael Hennessy is the sheriff for the city and county of San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you. Michael. I don't think my mic's working. Uh, I think our mics went off. Uh, well, I could just yell. There you go. Back on. Um, good morning. Uh, if you're an adult white male, your chances of being in my jail today are 300, one in 365. If you are an adult black male, your chances of being in my jail today are 1 in 23. We have over 1,000 black males in the San Francisco County Jail out of a population of 2,000. Uh, so there's an incredible uh, disparity that has to be addressed in this whole reentry issue. Um, one of the major issues is education. Uh, the vast majority of people in my jail do not have a high school degree, uh, let alone any higher degree. Um, there's a recent study that I read that showed that uh, an offender who uh, received a GED in some, voca some vocational training was 20% less likely uh, to recidivate than those who did not. And for those who achieved an AA degree, the recidivism rate was 13.7%. For those who received a BA degree, the rate dropped to 5.6%. And for offenders, ex-offenders who achieved a master's degree, the recidivism rate was zero. So I think there's a, an obvious correlation between education uh, and recidivism. The San Francisco Sheriff's Department um, runs four specific reentry programs that I'll mention, uh, the oldest of which is called the Post-Release Education Program, PrEP. Uh, and it is a drop-in center for ex-offenders, currently located at 70 Oak Grove, a block away from the Hall of Justice. And it's sort of an all-service, all-purpose all service center where people can come and uh, receive counseling, referrals. Uh, we do an annual job fair uh, for ex-offenders. Um, and we have professional counselors there who, who deal with a whole variety of issues, how to get people into substance abuse, uh, the very types of things that are listed in the uh, resource book that's being handed out today or being made public today. Uh, secondly, um, four years ago, we received permission from the San Francisco Unified School District to create a charter high school for the county jail. And even though the vast majority of our students, about 200 students a day, are in the jail itself, we realized that uh, people in jail don't stay there oftentimes long enough to get their high school degree. So we set up a post-release, a re-entry uh, facility for high school as well, part of five, the Five Keys Charter High School, and it's also located at the Prep Center at uh, 70 Oak Grove. Uh, we would like to see more people come to that high school. It's free. You get a high school degree. You know, it's not a GED program. It is a high school degree program. It's a program where all the students have to pass the 
controversial California high school exit exam, and they do. We've had um, about 60 or 65 graduates so far. Um, a year ago, uh, almost a year ago, the Board of Supervisors, um, in the process that Supervisor Mercurimi was just discussing, this sort of add back process at the end of the budget year, uh, challenged a bunch of us uh, in the criminal justice system to create a program specifically targeting violent violence in the community. And from that uh, challenge, uh, Jeff Adachi, myself, and others uh, developed a program called the No Violence Alliance. And it is a program, NOVA, it is a program that where we seek out uh, people in our jail and now uh, people in state prison um, who are coming back to San Francisco who have, who are convicted of a crime of violence who have a history of, of being convictions of crimes of violence. So we're taking a very risky population and we are asking them to voluntarily participate in a case management program. And the case managers um, work for a variety of CBOs in San Francisco. We have a, a, quite a mix of, of people that we work with. And they provide whatever services that ex-offender needs, whether it's uh, education, substance abuse counseling, residential treatment, and even uh, free housing uh, until they can find uh, regular housing or uh, housing on their own. Um, and uh, we've just released a nine-month study, and I believe copies of that are here available as well, that go, goes into a, a whole variety of uh, measurements about how this program is working. Uh, but one measurement people are always interested in is recidivism. And as I say, this is a, uh, a group of men and women who have violent histories and violent, <coughs> violent criminal convictions. Uh, of the 100 people who went through it in the first nine months, 26 were rearrested, and only five of those were rearrested for an act of violence. So I do think that uh, this case management program has great potential, and um, it's one that I think uh, should be expanded as well. And the last program I'll mention that the Sheriff's Department um, has started running, but it's having its grand opening next week, and that is a women's reentry center, specifically for women ex-offenders, so whether they are coming out of county jail or state or federal prison. It's located in a, a block away from the Hall of Justice at 930 Bryant Street, a building that used to be a work furlough building. And it will be uh, an all-purpose all service center for women ex-offenders, women getting out of jail, whether they're just walking across the street from the the Hall of Justice complex or whether they've been out of custody or are dropping off the bus from the state prison. And we will have um, a variety of services there, counseling, uh, job training. Um, we will be developing on-site classes um, and uh, trying to provide services that are gender specific because oftentimes women who comprise uh, 10 to 13 percent of the prison population and jail population oftentimes sort of get lost in the shuffle or are um, sexually harassed uh, in other environments, and uh, we think this will be a more friendly and effective uh, service center. So those are four of the, the programs that uh, San Francisco Sheriff's Department operates, and uh, we're very happy to uh, have the support of the Board of Supervisors in these pro programs, and um, very, very happy to work with the district attorney and uh, public defender on these programs. Our next speaker is Mara Salamontes. She's a Chief Deputy Secretary with the Adult Programs for the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Yeah, it's working. 
This is on. Good morning. Uh, it's really an honor to be here. First of all, I, I, I want to uh, echo the words of the, the um, uh, our, my former speakers here. I am inspired by the, uh, by the diversity, the energy, the passion of your leadership right here in San Francisco City and County. Uh, you're, you are really uh, very, very fortunate. I'm sure you know this is a, a very unique situation that you have in San Francisco. But I'm also inspired by the, um, by the people that are represented here today. Heather, uh, your story, uh, Jason Bell's vision, Jamar's experience, and so many others who are here today. It's why we do the work that we do. I mean, we don't just believe that people are capable of change. We know because we have seen firsthand that people, given the right tools, uh, will take advantage of that opportunity. And it is a long uphill battle. It doesn't happen overnight. We recognize that. Um, but so many times our criminal justice system doesn't have the patience. And we have to learn patience. We have to recognize that Relapse is part of the process, and we have to set up systems that take people not all the way back to prison when they make a mistake, but maybe bring them back through, through a process slowly. But anyway, that's, a, that's probably a different workshop, so let me get back to the original question. I apologize for that aside. Um, in terms of our involvement in reentry, I think that was the original question. Um, you know, the tide is turning at corrections and rehabilitation. You know, we changed our mission a couple years ago from the California Department of Corrections to the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. And that change is a major change, not only in how we do business, what our mission is, what our focus is, but, uh, you know, this is going to be a long uphill battle. This is a major shift in our culture. We've got to invest resources in programming offenders uh, as opposed to putting all of our dollars in uh, the supervision of offenders. Obviously, public safety is our, is our first concern. But when you look at our budget, about 5% of our budget actually goes into the programming and treatment of offenders. And that is abysmal. That has to change. Uh, what we also see... What we also see in our institutions, we have 172,000 uh, offenders crammed in space that was designed for less than 100,000. And so no wonder that people who arrive at our institutions, sentenced from our local communities, um, many times unprepared for their release, leave uh, oftentimes in worse shape than when they first got there. And it's not, it's no wonder we have lots of uh, many, many, many uh, more incidents in our prisons today than we've ever had in the past. And it's, it's in large part because of the overcrowded um, circumstances in which offenders are living today. And as the uh, Chief Deputy Secretary for Adult Programs, I want to implement more programs in prison. But as I walk the prison grounds, I see very little space. So much of our program space has now been converted to housing. And we're not only double bunking, you know, putting bunk beds for, uh, for offenders in that program space, but we're triple bunking them today, which creates a very unsafe 
uh, environment for our offenders, for our staff, and real challenges for us to program. But I haven't given up. There are places where we can add modular trailers, and we're in the process of doing that, where we can add, create space for offenders to actually go to school, work on their GED, get some drug treatment, get some job readiness skills prior to their release. So we'll do what we can in prison. But what I'm most excited about, actually, is um, a bill that was recently passed by the legislature and signed by the governor, Assembly Bill 900, which is the Public Safety and Offender Rehabilitation Services Act. In that bill, uh, some will argue it doesn't go far enough. Some people say it creates too many beds. Well, what, for whatever criticisms we might have of the bill, we have to take advantage of the opportunity that it presents. And it includes the authorization for up to 16,000 reentry beds throughout California. To me, that's the promise of reform, in, uh, in pr of prison reform. Because what we plan to do, what we hope to do, but we can only do it with communities who invite us to partner with them. We're not going to go into communities and site those reentry facilities. We're going to work in a collaborative way. Uh, we have to with communities to site reentry facilities where offenders who are within six to 12 months of release would be identified in prison and be given an opportunity to go to that reentry facility that would be closer to home, closer to family, closer to support, closer to those resources that are going to help them make that transition from prison to release. And at this facility, we will do um, risk and needs assessments to identify what are the specific needs that this offender faces, what are his or her biggest challenges, and we'll focus on those. Working on that, getting that GED, getting some VOC training, identifying what the job opportunities are in the community, and working with offenders to get ready for those kinds of jobs where offenders will hire formerly incarcerated persons, where they can make a living wage and support themselves and their families. That will be the focus, job readiness, and um, drug treatment. You heard, you, you all know the st statistics. There are well over 70% of our offenders who have uh, issues of addiction. So we need to address that problem straight up. Um, so drug treatment will be a part of every one of these uh, reentry facilities. And then finally, housing. About 10% of our population, when they leave prison, really don't even know where it is that they're going to live. Don't have either permanent or temporary housing available to them. And so we need to deal with that as well. So I think, as I said earlier, the, the real hope, the real promise in AB 900 is in these 16,000 reentry beds that we have authorized. I think we have to take advantage of that opportunity that the legislature has presented to us. Um, I have been uh, going throughout the state. We've held eight workshops. We plan 10. As a matter of fact, we'll be in San Mateo next Friday to talk with your local officials about reentry and the potential 
uh, for this part of the uh, this region in the state to implement some of these reentry centers. As a matter of fact, we've been uh, meeting with your sheriff and your district attorney and uh, working in partnership for, with the potential, with the goal of siting a, a reentry center here in San Francisco. We may start small, but we have big visions, big dreams, and um, I'm very optimistic about the future because reentry is something that really, really needs to start when offenders first arrive uh, in our facilities. We need to do risk and needs assessments. We need to do good case management and provide the programs that they need for success. We need to do that assessment again before they're released and then provide those services and programs in the community. Well, that full spectrum is not in place yet. And we're starting actually on the back end with reentry, but best to start somewhere. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm optimistic about the, about the future. Thank you. Our last speaker is Philip Torda with the West Bay District Administrator for Parole with the uh, California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I would like to thank everyone uh, for inviting me to be here today. Um, my expertise is in field operations. Um, when an inmate is released on parole to the community, the first contact they have is with our agents. And if anyone knows how difficult it is for someone to get off a bus with less than $200 because they paid for the bus fare, and to report to the office and say we, uh, he, has no, he or she has no place to stay, we're well aware of that because that parolee is now in crisis and we've got to provide some sort of services. services excuse me. Um, I've been in this business 31 years, and I hope I don't look like it. But when I first got in this business, I believed that I got into it uh, to help people. That was the philosophical basis for most of the probation offices and parole at that time. We saw a swing in the other direction, and I'm real excited because I see a swing in the other direction. Um, it's convinced me to stay a few, for a few more years just to stick around and see how this works out. But in parole, um, as Maricela pointed out, in the last two years, we've added rehabilitation back into our name. There was a time when that was a, a bad word to say. But, you know, uh, with that shift, we've also seen a renewed emphasis in reentry. Now, I'm really excited about the AB 900 money that will eventually uh, provide us with reentry beds here in San Francisco, hopefully. But we've also, in the parole field operations, have done stuff to, to tie try to help or assist parolees to reintegrate in the community a lot quicker. Um, we have here in San Francisco approximately 18 to 1900 parolees on active parole at any time. We have a weekly PAC meeting and at that PAC meeting um, all our contracted vendors are there, uh, other community resources are there so we can give the parolee an opportunity to see what's available to them uh, upon their release. Um, we've put money into a parole service center. Um, that's a 40-bed facility 
where parolees can stay for up to a year um, and they, while they try to find work. And that program is always at 100 to, uh, maybe 110 percent capacity. I mean, we have a, a definite need here in San Francisco for more housing resources. Um, Maricela said that 10 percent of, of inmates are released with no home to go to. But I do believe here in San Francisco it's a lot greater than that. That seems to be one of our, our, our primary issues when parolees get out. Um, we have also uh, have contract services with Walden House, uh, Northern California Service Leagues. We have a mother-infant program on Treasure Island that's always full. Um, women are assessed in prison, and then if uh, they seem or are deemed appropriate for that program, they're released to that program when they're released from prison and transported there. And we've had a huge amount of success at that, uh, success at that program. Um, we also have uh, the NOVA. Um, I, you know, I thank our lucky stars that Sheriff Hennessy had the foresight to develop a program for violent offenders because previously that group of parolees had no services. Because they were convicted of violent offenses, many programs will not deal with them. They will not offer them services. And the same for our, our, our sex offenders. Uh, they're excluded from a lot of programming. So um, the NOVA program has filled a void for us. And I, I tell you, we're so happy, and I sing the praises of that program every chance I get. <laughs> um, another thing that we've done is there's a pre-release program in prison where parole staff are doing assessments on parolees prior to their release. Um, we've had a few issues getting all the information we need, but we're starting to see these assessments flow a lot more freely. And in those assessments, they've identified the needs of a parolee, um, and, such as employment, housing, substance abuse, anger management. And that way, the parole agent has uh, an idea of what kind of services are right for this parolee. And we really believe that, that the quicker we can get a a parolee connected to services in the community, the, the more successful they will be. And um, that's our focus. And like I said, I'm real excited about the times we're in. And, uh, you know, going forward, I hope we get a reentry facility here at some time. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, here's our game plan. We're running a little behind schedule. At around 11.30, I hope to open up our discussion for audience questions, and you can address your questions through that uh, microphone that's in the center of the room. I have a number of questions for our panelists, and I know I'm not going to get to all of them, but I'll try. Uh, here's my first question. I've been trying to get a handle on the state of pantry program. I've been trying to understand the state of reentry programs in San Francisco, and uh, I've been hearing about some wonderfully innovative programs started by the Sheriff's Department, the Public Defenders, the District Attorney's Office. But I also come away with the impression that these programs are, serve a small number of um, ex-offenders, and they're very piecemeal. Um, and I think a lot of ex-offenders are, are falling through the cracks, and they aren't part of any of these programs. Assuming that money were no object, what would a comprehensive reentry system look like that would serve all or most San Francisco adult ex-offenders 
um, returning from federal and state prisons and county jails. Who wants to take that? Let me jump in if I can. Um, we, we greatly need in San Francisco, and this has been discussed uh, sort of philosophically, I'll say, uh, in the past year, but we greatly need additional probation services in San Francisco. Uh, almost everybody who gets out of county jail is on probation. And, and uh, Pat can tell you better than I can, but almost everybody on probation is not getting any super services. They have, they have um, far too many people on probation than they can provide uh, probation officers for or services for. And in a, in a perfect system, that's where the services would be, would be applied. Um, they have probation officers who can direct people to, to uh, uh, services, who have um, <coughs> the ability to offer incentives such as a, a reduction in the time on probation or at least a recommendation of reduction in time on probation, and who also have both the carrot and the stick. In other words, they have the ability to... Um, to use a, a crude term, threaten people with revocation and probation if they don't comply with, with the conditions set by the court. Um, but that, unfortunately, I think is a, still a slowly building process of, of uh, building up the um, ability of our probation department to supervise the number of people who are on probation. Um, the services, I think, are to some degree um, fragmented, as you say, but it's also because you are dealing with different populations. Uh, for example, the district attorney's back on track program deals primarily with, with first-time offender drug dealers. Um, and they have a different need of services and, and than the NOVA program, which is dealing with people who have specific um, violent histories and violent tendencies. So, um, and I think, so I think they're, that the fragmentation doesn't uh, doesn't hurt. Secondly, um, I like Supervisor Mercury's idea of a reentry uh, department. I don't know if we'll ever get to that stage, but that might be a place where you would have a reentry department, and within that you would have divisions of people uh, people who are more experienced with dealing with violent offenders, people who are more experienced uh, dealing specifically with um, with women offenders, more people who are dealing with uh, first-time or younger offenders and who you can do different things with. Uh, so I, I, even though fragmentation sounds like disorganization, I don't think so. I think it, it provides more of a specialization. Um, in San Francisco, you know, we have about um, 45,000 people come through our jail a year, most of whom don't stay very long. Uh, our sentence population is probably 8,000 people who get jail sentences and serve jail sentences and get out. Um, and, of course, some people are sent off to state prison as well. Um, so I think the numbers really are, are manageable if, the, uh, if there's a will to provide services. Case management services seem to be the most effective. We, we used to have funding for a mentally ill offender uh, case management program funded by the state. It had incredibly good, uh, good results of people um, having case managers who helped uh, mentally ill offenders uh, stay on their meds and make their appointments and find housing and, and negotiate some of the, the complications of their housing. And, and very few of those individuals ever got rearrested while they were on a case management program. So if you were going to ask me for the, um, the ideal program, I would say that, that uh, ex-offenders should voluntarily be part of a case management program and most people would take those services, 
And uh, I think that, that then uh, they don't have to figure out where the services are themselves because it is a complicated and fragmented uh, and dispersed system. But if they had a case manager, the case manager would know where those systems were, could tailor them to the needs of the person, and then the services that do get delivered, I find, are effective. Add one thing. I mean, the, the NOVA program that we've talked about here, I believe it serves about, it has served about 100 um, formerly incarcerated individuals. The Board of Supervisors invested about a million dollars uh, in that uh, project over the past two years, and we received a grant from the Department of Corrections for 500000 So that program will probably serve about 200 people uh, this year. What it requires is intensive case supervision. And the caseloads are about 15 uh, formerly incarcerated individuals per caseworker. And that caseworker is responsible for ensuring that the individual gets service. Now, you also need money. And that's one of the things that's often forgotten, that if a parolee wants to go to truck driving school, if the parolee wants to you know, find temporary housing, you've got to have those resources that you can put towards that. And what the sheriff has done, rather than you know, sucking it all up, and administrative costs, he has put that directly into community programs. They then created a comprehensive uh, database so community providers can work together. So if you have a housing person working with an education person, working with the life skill persons, they can all communicate with each other simultaneously. And this is something that we're going to talk about later in the uh, program. Um, and we work with a host of, of program uh, providers who are located in the community because if you have these programs outside of the communities where the parolees live and if you look at where parolees are there are about 1500 parolees in San Francisco at any given time a third live in Baby Hunters Point um, probably about 20 percent 25 percent are in the Tenderloin so they're in communities uh, such as the Mission Western Edition and you have to have those services located in the community so they're accessible to people and um, so if you look at that and you ask the question, if we had 20 million, if we had 25 million, if we had 50 million, what kind of changes could we make? It could be monumental. But provided that there's good leadership, provided that there's accountability, and provided that it just doesn't get sucked up by, you know, other administrative costs, it really has to go down and flow down uh, to the parolee or probationer. And I think uh, that's key. And what's been good about the programs that we have implemented is that we have put an evaluation component in there. And you have to have that. Otherwise, you know, it's like flushing uh, money down the toilet. You don't know where the money goes. And you have to be able to show that level of, uh, of, of accountability. And, you know, so, I mean, I think the challenge here is what could we do if we had more resources? We do need those resources, and we need to advocate for that. And to, put the money, to put the money somewhat in Jeff's perspective, as he pointed out, this during this 12-month period, we'll have or 18-month period, I think, we'll have about 1.5 million dollars to spend on Nova for those reentry services for that group of offenders. But uh, in my department budget for running the county jails, I'll spend about 100 million. Okay, thank you. Um, okay. Uh, we would certainly concur that the case management is a critical part of it and that for the level of probation services provided today through the adult probation department that we are not doing what we need to do. We, as I said earlier, with the support of the mayor and the board of supervisors and the judges, 
are working to transform the department and improve the level of service. Uh, the Board of Supervisors just recently approved three additional positions uh, to provide direct service to specialized treatment caseloads. What, what I want to add, though, is that we, in terms of the level of resources and the number of people we're dealing with, we really have to recognize what we've done over the past 30 years. And we have to look at, for the next 30 years, are we going to continue down the same path or are we going to stop and regroup and try something different? The mayor talked about doing things differently. In the past 30 years, since 1980, our California population has grown by 60%. At the same time, the prison population has grown by 700%. That's 12 times faster growth rate for prison population than for the state population. There's three things that contributed to that. The war on drugs nationally, which really I think is our war on families and neighbors. We have not effectively dealt with the drug problem. We, we passed the LPS Act with good intentions of releasing mentally ill from state facilities and providing community mental health care, we failed miserably at providing appropriate community mental health care. The determinant sentence law became a recipe for piecemeal incremental change in our sentencing practices instead of a reasoned approach to what will work for criminal justice system in California. We've got to stop and go back and look at those three areas. Arrest should not be the treatment of choice for the mentally ill or the substance abusers. I want to um I want to support totally what you're saying, Patrick. I mean, I think we have to consider the whole, the whole issue, not just uh, pieces and parts of it. I think the only thing that I would add is that um, no part of our system, the criminal justice system, acts independently. I mean, we're all connected. There's like interdependent parts. Although we don't always work that way. We don't necessarily talk to each other, work together, plan together, and look at it from the point of view of the offender, but rather from our own specific missions. Um, I think we do a much better job of that here in San Francisco City and County. I see a great, a lot more collaboration here than I see in other parts of the state. But I think that's absolutely essential for us to step back and not really care who gets the credit or who gets the resources necessarily today. If that's where the issue, that's where the problem is, that's where the focus needs to be. Um, so I also think that um, in, in terms of this whole uh, reentry issue, we're, uh, although I'm, I'm thrilled that we're focusing on it and we're moving in that direction, I think we really have to look at prevention from the front end. And um, I think you know, not, not enough uh, energy or attention is focused there from my point of view. And actually, if, as I look at the uh, offenders who are leaving prison, you've heard the numbers, well over 100,000 every year leaving our prisons. 
we need to look at that um, group of people as uh, what, what we would call the undiscovered workforce. I mean, these are people who are, a many of them are able, capable, um, able-bodied people who can contribute to our communities and can also contribute to this whole prevention issue. If we can train them and utilize them as mentors uh, to this next generation who are being recruited to gangs as young as seven, eight, nine years old, and because really uh, those youngsters look up to folks who have walked that path, and if they tell them, you don't want to go there for these reasons and speak their language, I think we can start to divert some of that next generation away from crime and drugs, et cetera. Um, from our operation uh, viewpoint, what has happened is parolees are released back in the community unprepared for what's really, what's really going to happen to them. Um, they come out with high hopes um, and high expectations, but most of them are not prepared. Um, if we're talking about reentry, we need to prepare them to reenter the workforce prior to them getting out. It's real difficult for a parolee with no place to stay to concentrate on getting a job and all the other things they need to do. We need to provide training and those skills that will allow them to be successful when they leave. Um, I had the opportunity to visit the sheriff's jail recently in San Bruno, and they had a huge education program going on there. And I think that's, you know, something that we haven't done that we probably need to do. Um, they need employment services, job readiness. Um, they, need, they need jobs. A lot of our parolees will go through our jobs program and not be able to find work. And that's extremely difficult and hard for them to, for us to keep them on track to continue down that path. They also need substance abuse treatment prior to getting out. And, and, and we need some sort of interconnection between the reentry program and parole agents before they get out. So when they do get out, any programming that they will need upon release, it will be seamless. We can ensure that they continue in their treatment. Um, we need anger management for our people. They have a real difficult time with that. We need batterers program. Many of our people want to get out and reunify with their spouses. And, you know, we can't allow that as a, as a parole agency to happen until they complete a 52-week uh, batterers program. So that puts another hardship on our parolees. Um, we need some sort of system where our parolees are, are, are beginning to reunify with their family support system. Um, you know, once they're connected back with that support, uh, personally I found that parolees are much more successful if they have their family involved in what uh, obstacles they need to overcome. So any system we talk about, uh, reentry, all those components need to be part of it. Thank you. Do you mind if I weigh in? Go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> I'll just do this quickly. <clears throat> I'm delighted that everybody is sort of speaking the same sentence about workforce, jobs, and the ability of finally aiming reentry services 
in all the right trajectory. That's what I was talking about earlier, that just the fact that the various departments weren't talking to each other several years ago is absolutely astounding. And now that we finally have a coordinated focus, and that focus is coming together, begs the further question about how do we make it more effective. This is why I like the idea down the road about potentially a department of reentry, because for all those people who fall through the cracks, for all those people who don't have the inspiration, motivation, who are too distressed or beleaguered, who are not going to be able to chase the resources or services that should be there, that's the population I worry about. And that's the population that is quite likely, in order to repeat their offenses and continue to go down the path that we don't want them to go down to. But it also concurrently answers the other questions about how do we tackle the joblessness in San Francisco? How do we tackle the impoverishment and the enclaves of impoverishment that exist in San Francisco that happen to double as the exact same communities that are host to those who are formerly incarcerated? This is why this strategy is not so novel. This is why it is really predicated on the political will in focusing the resources and the determination and the obligation about all of us up here, from the feds, the state, and local, to make sure we're procuring those resources. Quite frankly, if you have everybody in the fishbowl, no matter how well-intentioned and how effective they are in a decentralized system, by putting them under one roof, eventually allows us to see that accountability of who it is we're capturing, who it is we're saving and helping, and who it is we're missing. Otherwise, just by the intrinsic relationship of having groups sort of decentralized like this, it's always a chasing game of figuring out who is not really getting the services they need. And that is why local governments seem to be bewildered across the state and the country as to why things are not working and why crime seems to be spiking. But, you know, really, you know, I think much to the frustration of many. The other thing is I want to give something specific, and I've mentioned this before. On October 11th, in the Board of Supervisors at the Rules Committee at 10 a.m., this is our effort. In order to try to talk about prevention, I'm serious about the fact that I want to put our people back to work, and I want to make sure that the dollars we invest are going to the people to make sure that they're getting the job skills and training and the job placement. If you care to, come and lend your support to our discussion about supporting the centralization of workforce. This is radical, but it's common sense. And if you'd like to come on October 11th, I encourage you to. We could use your support. Thank you. I'd like to ask one more question before we go to uh, audience questions. Ex-offenders <coughs> face enormous obstacles to reintegrating back into society. And one of the biggest obstacles is laws that prohibit the hiring of ex-felons. Is there anything being done to change those laws and other related laws that pose barriers to reentry? <laughs> well, what do you think needs to be done? Um, recently in San Francisco, uh, there was an effort, a successful effort to um, remove. Recently in San Francisco, there was a successful effort to remove from civil service applications the, in the initial application, the question of have you ever been 
convicted of a crime or convicted of a felony, I forget which it was. Uh, it was ban the box. Ban the box. And uh, that was successful. San Francisco uh, city officials adopted that, and that is no longer. But um, that's the only recent effort that I'm aware of. I'm, of course, I don't, I'm not in the legislature, so uh, I don't know if there's anything else going on. My, my understanding is that Supervisor Murakarimi is um, has some legislation as relates to bonding, and maybe if you can explain how how that works. <laughs> oh yeah. So, in addition to us trying to retool how workforce is done in San Francisco, as it relates strictly to the uh, population of those who are formerly incarcerated. There's always been something available, but incredibly underutilized, where the state and the feds provide bonds available to employers, where if an employer decides to uh, buy a bond, which is really pennies on the dollar, it's used as an incentive in order to hire those who were in the prison system, because the unemployment rate is staggering. When we talk about joblessness, especially amongst the ex-offender population, I mean, this is where we're sort of failing altogether. So I visited the state EDD office. I've talked uh, to Fed and state officials about this, and I asked for the uh, data as to how many employers actually utilize this bonding program in order to hire people in San Francisco who were once in the system. And they had, I mean, hundreds of bonds available. And in one year, four were actually tapped by employers for in one year. Let's call it what it is. I mean, it's an abysmal failure with a 96% you know, failure rate, essentially. And so the legislation we're putting out there is a separate piece that it says it's time for San Francisco to consider buying those bonds and that we should then do a better job in marketing to the private sector to hire people who were once in this system and to give them these bonds for whatever ambivalence, whatever fear there is, this is, I think, our strategy to helping alleviate that so they feel some guarantee that they're not taking on a risk unsupported. And I believe if the city takes control of this, then that helps shore up the question about how do we put those to work who are looking for a job or needs the training, whereas otherwise this is just hasn't been working at all. Uh. Uh, Supervisor Mikarini, I, I have a kind of follow-up question. I live in the East Bay, so I'm aware of uh, the city of Oakland taking affirmative measures to place ex-offenders in city jobs. Is San Francisco doing anything similar to that? Shoddily, in some ways, but in, but we are the largest employer, you know, in the city and county. And I think the first uh, important step was that we did ban the box, which now other cities are following our lead. And that's important because that's a psychological impediment and a hurdle for people who want to pursue a job, then get that application, don't want to fill it out because they feel that the stigma's already prevented them to. So that was an important barrier that we knocked down. Now, with the fact that we have congregated and focusing on this question about job skills and training, so goes the marketing of our departments to make sure we're reaching out and hiring people who were once in the system into city jobs. And that's exactly where we're going. Some of those largest departments, the Department of Human Services and Public Works and PUC, uh, as well as the 
nine other departments who do workforce that we're trying to press upon that they actually add priority of hiring people who are formerly uh, incarcerated. And that's what I meant about up until about two years ago, this has really been kind of a footnote discussion. Now it's a front burner discussion, and this is why we're pushing for this kind of programming in the various departments. Thank you. May I, may I say something? Go ahead. Um, as part of the uh, U.S. probation, I actually sit at the Oakland Federal Building. I'm a San Francisco resident. So we have venue offices in San Jose, Oakland, and San Francisco. We have actually entered into a contract with an organization named America Works for Oakland because they passed Measure Y funds and we have our offenders going for a two-week training and are guaranteed employment after they do the two-week training. So specifically with Oakland, they have that and we've been able to tap into that. We're San Francisco to possibly have something like that. I know we would look at trying to get some kind of Memorandum of understanding, a referral process that we can send our offenders to say, you do this two-week training, you're going to have a job guaranteed right after that. Okay, we have a few more minutes left. I'd like to open up this part of the session for audience questions. I particularly like to encourage those of you who uh, are community service providers, organizations that work directly with ex-offenders, uh, to come up to the microphone and speak because I think this is a chance to dialogue directly with criminal justice agencies as a kind of beginning step towards uh, working collaboratively, towards working toward a uh, comprehensive reentry system that a lot of us would like to see happen in San Francisco. And um, we have our first speaker. Uh, hello, panelists. Thank you for being here today. Uh, my name is Greg Katz and I'm the Deputy Director of Housing and Homeless Programs for the San Francisco Department of Human Services. We uh, fund and oversee a significant amount of the supportive housing in the city of San Francisco. And I'd like to ask you your ideas in terms of how we can more effectively serve our reentering clients, uh, specifically in terms of providing appropriate housing and in terms of on-site supportive services. Well, I know that um, we'd be very happy to work with you through the NOVA project, which is our case management program and our women's reentry center. Uh, and uh, have, you, have you or somebody come and we have a, we have a weekly case management program, uh, case managers uh, conference and come and, and make a presentation. I, I would be glad to. I'd be yeah. glad to come and trade ideas and make a presentation regarding yeah. our housing and shelter program. Very happy to have you. Do that. We, al we also uh, have a number of um, people in our high school who uh, one of the main barriers of them completing their high school education after they get out is they frankly have to have a place to, to live. And I'd be very happy to have you uh, meet with some of the people from our high school program, too, because housing uh, for those folks uh, is a, a key barrier for them to completing their high school education. And we do have youth yeah. housing specifically. So give me a call. Yeah, thanks. Good morning. My name is Lou Tremaine, and um, through two organizations in Marin County, Family Works and Center Force, I teach a parenting class inside San Quentin as part of the second, um, or as part of the um, education program they have in the H unit. In the coming year, we're going to be working in the communities, yours among them, um, providing parenting and relationship coaching and case management to folks who've taken our parenting class and are releasing into the communities. 
And I wonder, as we bring this program to your community, what advice you might have to us in working in your city and what critical needs you think we should be on the lookout for as we work with these families. Uh, the probation department perspective would be that the, the family issues and parenting are clearly a major issue. Um, it's very important to take a family perspective in terms of the, those re-entering and we would be very pleased to work with you. I'm pleased to hear you're putting the program on at San Quentin. How long have you been there? A year. A year? Okay. Um, and we'd be very happy to host you at our, at our two reentry centers, our Women's Reentry Center and our um, PrEP program, uh, you know, help you work there. Uh, I do think that one of the areas that you will have to address, which uh, we are addressing with our Department of Child Support Services, and that is... Um, uh, child support payments in arrears and how that can be addressed so that the person, uh, the parent who is, o who is owed uh, o thousands and thousands of dollars in arrears on child support doesn't just give up. Uh, they can um, oftentimes have those payments certainly terminated while they're or put in abeyance while they're in custody, but then also um, we work with the child, Department of Child Support Services to set up a payment plan so that's not so overwhelming and they meet their legal obligations but they aren't um, chased away th through that process and I know that that, that, that has been a, a big, uh, uh, had a big impact on people uh, being able to maintain relationships with their children because they haven't, they've uh, gone default on their uh, child support payments and so uh, we can help you, make you, help you make those connections in San Francisco as well. I also wanted to mention that one new area of focus uh, in reentry is looking at the impact of children of incarcerated parents. In the last two years, there's been a number of uh, legislative uh, changes that have taken into consideration the impact of um, incarcerating a, a parent who has particularly young children. In San Francisco, with the support of the Zalabak Family Fund, we started a children of incarcerated parents program at our office. There are also other programs through Community Works here in San Francisco, we'd be happy to partner with you. And in fact, uh, one of the panel um, discussions this afternoon evolves around children of incarcerated parents. But I think the work that you're doing is critical. Keeping the family together is really half the battle. Hi, uh, good morning. My name is Lillian Turner, and uh, I'd like to thank you all for coming out. Uh, all the dignitaries and my distinguished colleagues uh, in the room, human services providers. I am a, am a currently a candidate for uh, an MPA in uh, organizational counseling at Cal State Hayward. I'm writing my thesis on uh, the national initiative, All of Us and None. Definitely an issue uh, nationally highlighted uh, in legislation to ban the box. I'm also a, a volunteer coordinator at the CCSF Way Pass Reentry Program for women who endeavor to achieve uh, uh, academic achievement and higher educational goals. At this point, uh, I am not salaried, but I've been working there for over a year and a half. And uh, I uh, happened over the summer uh, to seek sustainable employment. And I called the parole department and I said, yeah, uh, 
You know, I uh, came through the system in 1996, and I got to go sale. I am currently unemployed. I have a, a bachelor's in social work, and I'm finishing up my thesis uh, at Cal State Herod. I have four units before I receive my uh, MPA. And I was told, when, unfortunately, I was told, uh, very pushed off to the side, I said, can you refer me to someone at the employment office? I need a job agent in San Francisco, preferably, to uh, sustain me until uh, grants are appropriated for a way pass uh, program uh, at the, under the Health Education Department of San Francisco. Because they had submitted, but nothing came through. And I needed money to pay my rent. I need money for transportation. I need money for food and uh, other basic necessities. And um, I was told that, no, uh, there's nothing that we can do. I cannot refer you anywhere. Uh, I don't really know what to tell you to do. So I said, you know, I thought that uh, when I got, once a parolee was released from parole, that if you had a problem, you said your doors were open and to come back to you. And I think this is... A simple problem. I just need to be referred to a job agent at employment office. So, again, I was told um, no, and I wanted to call that uh, uh, to uh, your uh, attention that uh, we have comprehensive wraparound services. But with me, I'm still in the process of getting my degree, and during the process, one of the programs, the, the grants lag. Or this is how example of how somebody who's been going to school, and I've been working part-time at schools all along and uh, taking part-time jobs to furnish, to pay for my education. And when I really had enough degrees and had enough, I have enough eight years experience working in student services uh, at community colleges and at the state college uh, in Hayward, and now I'm doing just straight uh, volunteer work over here at uh, San Francisco. But when I needed to go to the employment office and needed to have somebody to know somebody at UC Berkeley or to know somebody at San Jose that would have made a contact at uh, uh, another college where I could get off the streets and go to work, the doors were closed. So I have, you know, basically if I was a hothead and didn't have a, a lot of support group, I'm a person that easily, easily can be picked back up now into the system with all the, you know, social pressures. If I just okay, would we go and drink, drink, or actually, drink a beer actually or something. Actually, we have a, a lot of people who okay. have questions behind you. So I guess the gist of this question is, uh, for ex-offenders, um, are there any resources, they, uh, places they can go to for uh, financial and housing assistance? No, it's not financial and housing assistance. <coughs> it's, it's an employment <coughs> agent, job agent, at the employment office. I, well, I would, being I would, available. I would uh, ask you to go to 930 Bryant Street. 930 Bryant Street in San Francisco. It's our Women Reentry Center uh, and Job Development. And helping people find jobs is one of the things they do. It's open uh, 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. And it's just, it's a brand new thing. That's why you, you probably weren't referred there before. But uh, go to 930 Bryant Street. Okay, thank you. Drop in. Hi, my name is Sarah Wilds, and I work in the trenches in um, San Quentin State Prison as a, a case manager. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank you for being here today. I feel um, really inspired by the opportunity to dialogue and 
collaborate. Uh, this is a beginning. I'm also grateful that this is a free event. Um, I feel that this is the beginning for uh, programming to happen. Um, I'm actually speaking, uh, I think, not only for myself, but for a lot of people who are in the trenches doing programming um, in San Quentin in particular. And um, I want to speak for the programming that's happening there and that's not getting the funding. Um, um, a, a, a model program uh, that happened in um, Oakland, uh, thanks to one leader, to our, our, our um, uh, Mayor Jerry Brown, who came to San Quentin and wanted to address the recidivism rate and uh, the violent offenders going back to his community, was able to get a federal grant and um, support a program in San Quentin and have that run part-time and have hundreds of man hours of classes and community programming happen on a daily basis. And Jeannie Woodford and the collaboration of uh, different um, service providers were able to make that happen. I'm just curious and um, interested in challenging the, the city of San Francisco to look at um, programs that are already happening and the, the passion and the dedication of volunteers that are already doing so much programming in the prisons already, and to create a venue for those programs that are already happening for them to go seek funding to continue those programs. Um, the program that I'm speaking of lost the funding after three years, even though we had um, 180 um, students a quarter going through these programs of, of 10 to 15 hour classes a week rehabilitating themselves a program like that should be able to sustain itself just through the funding of one program uh, we, coordinator we, uh, we're running out of time <laughs> okay um, so I'm just yeah I would like to see a venue and channel created um, for community service providers to go to somewhere in the city of San Francisco to seek funding and um, continue programs that are already happening in, in our prison system. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Allison West. I run the California Reentry Program at San Quentin. We have quite a contingent here. I have could, a, could you speak up into yeah, the mic? Sorry, my name is Allison West. I run the California Reentry Program at San Quentin. Um, I have what I hope is a very brief question. When the question was first asked about if you had unlimited funding, what would you do to assist in reentry? I'm curious if any of you would seriously consider sort of a public media campaign to educate the public in city and county of San Francisco about how incarcerating people for long periods of time, throwing away the key, is not reducing crime, not reducing violence. I think a lot of the problem is the public concept and sort of the conservative voice of owning the language of fear. And I guess I would like to see if any of you have considered that or feel that that's an important um, item on the agenda for some spending. Thank you. The, uh, thank you for your question. The, the Sheriff's Department had a uh, public uh, information campaign of that nature several years ago called Record Breaker, in which case we had uh, funding for 
uh, posters and bus stop uh, advertisement where we highlighted actual people uh, who had um, been in prison or been in jail and who went on to have uh, careers and, and jobs and who were willing to uh, essentially expose their lives and their backgrounds. And we did a public education campaign of that nature uh, through Community Works. Uh, we still have the, those posters up in the front lobby of our downtown jail. Um, I think the, the, the dilemma you always face is if you have some money available, are you going to try to educate the public or are you going to try to provide direct services? And I think more oftentimes uh, we err on the side of providing direct services. Okay, we have time for one more question. Oh. I'm, getting, I'm getting the cutoff sign here. My name is Denise Smith, and I have worked with um, probation youth for the last five years from our juvenile justice system. I am a caseworker, and I represent Mission Neighborhood Centers. And um, my question is funding uh, reentry programs to a level that will lend itself for success has to be systematic. And also, my question is to the mayor, I'm sure he's gone, but I know he'll hear this, um, is that um, why is it necessary to bring people from other parts of the country to deal with the unique problems of San Francisco instead of in, involving local people that have answers to the many of the local problems? And my last question is... And my last question is, do you, do you support gang injunctions? Would anyone like to address themselves to, uh, to those questions about more local involvement uh, with reentry efforts? I'll, I'll make a comment on that. Um, again, my very short time in San Francisco, about a month, my observation thus far has been I'm amazed at the high level of community involvement uh, compared to other locations where I've been. Um, and I, I think that when we talk about trying to develop the best solutions for difficult problems, that none of us know the answers to all of it. And the wider range of ideas and input that we get, I think the better off we are as far as developing good solutions. Does anyone want to respond on the, to the last question about gang injunctions? I guess I could because uh, I definitely oppose them. <laughs> And, you know, the, the idea behind these gang injunctions is that, you know, you're going to identify all the, quote, undesirable bad people and ban them from the community. Um, every study I've seen, the few that there are out there, shows that it simply displaces uh, crime to other areas, that um, essentially um, you give the police unlimited power to decide who is and who is not a gang member, that it subjects uh, people to uh, illegal arrest and, and detention. And we were in court yesterday arguing against the gang injunction. And, and just to give you a sense, I mean, the person that I was representing had uh, never been convicted of a crime before. Uh, his only infraction was that he was seen on three occasions with an alleged gang member, his, who happened to be his cousin. 
and that yeah, and, and and he's a rapper. He rapped about gang culture. I mean, by that standard, I mean Eminem would be subject to a gang injunction, 50 Cent, and everyone else. So, I mean, I, I just think that uh, these are wrong-headed solutions. If you look at Los Angeles, which has 30 gang injunctions and started these 15 years ago, they have now six six times as many gangs as they did back then. They have over. 11,000 gang crimes last year. New York, which has not used these gang injunctions, instead used community-based interventions, had 504 gang-related crimes uh, last year in New York City. So you do the math, it doesn't add up. We've run out of time for our uh, panel discussion. I'd like I, to thank all I'd of like, you. I'd like very much to make one last statement. I stood in this okay, line. Okay, if you could keep it brief. I will. Um, I wanted to say that we need to look at how we can do things sometimes, not necessarily outside of the law, but outside of the box. A few years ago, I was running an after-school program in the Western Edition and needed a certain kind of person to work with youth in that community. The person who came to me was an ex-offender. And he indicated in our conversation that he was, in fact, a felon. He put it on his application. When it was time for me to go forth with a recommendation for hiring him, I contacted the city attorney's office. I contacted the state attorney general's office. I contacted the, the uh, district, school district's attorney to find out what do you do when an, a felon or an ex-offender indicates ahead of time and on, in writing of the offense. Turns out that was a gray area in the law, and I'm a little bit afraid to go on because I don't want you to fix that because it worked. It had a great ending because it was a gray area in terms of what do you do when a person acknowledges the offense and the offense is not what you are hiring that person to do, nobody told me what to do. And so I hired that person. And that person is today a very successful person working with youth in the Western Edition. So don't fix it. But recognize, and for all of you who are out here, I want you to know that in terms of hiring felons and ex-offenders, if the person acknowledges it up front, there are circumstances in which you can hire that person and you can have a very happy ending. That story has been told in the newspapers, which is why I'm comfortable acknowledging it. They never told, he never told the circumstances under which he got his break, but I'm telling you there are situations in which you can hire an ex-offender. Just make certain he tells you ahead of time. Thank you. Thank you. And I'd like to thank all our panelists who uh, participated in our morning session today. Jeff Adachi, San Francisco Public Defender. Patrick Boyd, Deputy Chief with the San Francisco Adult Probation Department. 
Michael Hennessy, Sheriff for the City and County of San Francisco, Rosmir Karimi, Member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, Maricela Montes, Chief Deputy Secretary of Adult Programs with the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, Phil Torta, Supervisor with the CDCR Parole Division, and Daniel Zarita, Supervising Officer with the U.S. Federal Probation Department. Can we have a round of applause for our panelists? Okay, everybody, we're going to be taking a lunch break right now, and uh, at around 12.15, we'll be having a uh, keynote address by Luis Rodriguez. He's an activist and author of uh, Always Running, La Vida Loca, Gang Days in L.A. He'll be speaking about reducing violence through successful reentry, and then at around 1.15, we'll be returning for our afternoon panel discussions.